You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Volume 1 of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. It is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 7, entitled Characterizing Egoism, given in Berlin on the 25th of November 1909. Once upon a time, a society was founded with a program announcing as its central aim, quote, the abolition of egoism, close quote. That is, it wanted its members to undertake to work at cultivating selflessness and freedom from egoism in any form. This society had elected a president, as all societies do, and then they had to set about making propaganda of their fundamental principle to the world at large. It was emphatically laid down over and over again, and in all manner of ways, that no member at any time or place, and especially within the society, should cherish the slightest egoistic wish or express any kind of selfish desire. Now this was certainly a society with an uncommonly praiseworthy program and an exalted human goal, but one could not directly say that the members were seeking to exemplify in their own behavior the primary point on the program, for they scarcely allowed themselves to become acquainted with unselfish human desires. The following scene was often enacted within the society. One of the members would say, You know, I would like such and such, and surely the society could grant me that. But if I were to put it to the chairman myself, I would be advancing an egoistic wish, and that would be absolutely contrary to our program. It would never do. Then another member would say, Quite simple, I'll go on your behalf. Acting as your representative, I shall be making an entirely unselfish request. But listen, there is something I would like too. It is, of course, something thoroughly egoistic as well. So according to our program, I cannot propose it. Close quote. The first member would then say, If you are going to be so unselfish on my account, I will do something for you too. I will go to the chairman and ask for what you want. And so it turned out. One of them went to the chairman first, and then two hours later the other one went. Both of them put forward absolutely unselfish requests. I said that this society existed once upon a time, but... Obviously, what I have been describing is an absolutely hypothetical society. Yet anyone who looks around in daily life will perhaps agree that a little of this society exists all the time, everywhere. My intention was only to pinpoint that egoism is one of the words which most readily becomes a catchword, unless they are used in direct connection with whatever they designate. Otherwise, they appear in disguise and hide their true nature. Today, we will have a look at this catchword, egoism, and at its opposite, altruism, selflessness.
We shall not treat them as catchwords, but will try to penetrate a little into the nature of egoism. When we examine such things from the standpoint of spiritual science, it becomes less and less important whether one or another quality evokes sympathy or antipathy, or how it may be assessed according to some prevailing opinion. What matters much more is to show how the quality being referred to really arises, and what the limits are within which it applies, and if it has to be combated in one or another capacity, to what extent it can be taken in hand by human nature or through other existing beings. In its literal sense, egoism suggests the human characteristic that makes us interested in promoting whatever enhances our own personality, whilst its opposite, altruism, aims at placing human faculties at the service of others, indeed of the whole world. A simple consideration will show us how precarious our position is if we think only of the word egoism and do not look into the whole significance of it. Suppose that someone proves himself to be a great benefactor in one way or another. It could well be that he is a benefactor only out of egoism, perhaps out of quite petty forms of egoism, vanity or something similar. However, if a person is called an egoist for no other reason than that, this can by no means be the last word on his character. For if someone is only out for his own satisfaction, yet is full of noble qualities, so that he sees serving the interests of other as the best way forward for himself, we might just manage to put up with such an egoist. This may sound like playing with words, but it is more than that, because this word play pervades our entire life and shows itself in all realms of existence. With regard to everything to be found in man, we can find at least one thing analogous in the rest of the world. Schiller wrote a verse which can show us something in the big world that is an analogy for this outstanding quality of human nature. Quote, Seek you the highest, the greatest? The plant can teach it to you. What the plant does without willing it, go you and do by willing it. Close quote. Schiller draws our attention here to the realm of the plant and urges us to develop as part of our character something as noble as the plant is at a certain lower level. And the great German mystic Angelus Silesius says much the same, quote, not asking why and wherefore blooms the rose, cares not for herself or whether men behold her, quote. Here again we are called to think about the plant world, the plant draws in whatever it needs for its growth and does not ask why or wherefore. It flowers because it flowers and is not concerned whether anyone benefits. And yet it is by drawing its life forces and everything it needs for itself from its environment that the plant acquires whatever value it can have for its environment, including human beings. In fact, it becomes the most useful creation we can possibly imagine particularly if it belongs to those areas of the plant world which can be of service to beings that rank above it. And although the following words have been quoted time and again, it is not insignificant to hear them once more. Quote, 
When herself the rose adorns, she adorns the garden. If the rose is as beautiful as it can be, it adorns the garden. We can link this up with the word egoism and say if the rose strives really egoistically to be as beautiful as she can and to grace herself with the finest possible form, then she makes the garden as beautiful as it could possibly be. Can we take what we see expressed at a lower level in nature and apply it in some way to man? We have no need to do so ourselves because many others have done it before us, Goethe most beautifully of all. When Goethe wanted to express what a human being really is, and how best of all he shows his value and the full content of what he is, he described him this way, quote, When healthy human nature works as an harmonious whole, and man is aware of himself forming together with the world in which he lives a worthy and very beautiful whole, and this feeling of harmony gives him the most blessed joy, then the world all, if it were possible for it to be aware of itself, would cry out with the joy of attaining its goal and marvel at the height its own being and unfolding had reached. This passage is from Goethe's splendid book on Winkelmann, and elsewhere in the same book he says, quote, Placed at the pinnacle of nature, man sees himself as another complete nature, with the task of achieving another pinnacle in himself. He will ascend to this by acquiring the utmost achievement and virtues, invoking choice, order, harmony, and meaning, and finally attaining to the creation of a work of art. Goethe's whole way of thinking, however, shows that he is referring here to the artist only as a specialized example, and that he really means, placed upon the pinnacle of nature, man gathers together all that the world can express in him, and finally displays to the world its own image, mirrored from within himself. And nature would cry out for joy if she could perceive in the human soul this reflected image of herself. What else does this mean, other than that everything in the way of nature and spirit which surrounds us in the world outside us is concentrated in man, ascends to a pinnacle and becomes in individual human beings, in human individuality, as beautiful, true and perfect as it can. Therefore human beings will best realize their existence if they draw into themselves as much as they can from the outer world and make their own I, capital, their ego, as rich and well-developed as possible. Then they will have taken into themselves all that the world contains and which can become the blossom, the actual fruit of their existence. This view of things implies that human beings can never do enough to gather up in themselves all that their surrounding world contains in order to manifest a blossoming, the peak of the rest of existence. If you would like to call this egoism, you may do so. Then one could say, the human ego exists to act as an organ for what would otherwise remain hidden forever in the rest of nature. 
and which can come to expression only through being concentrated in the spirit of man. So we can say that it belongs to human nature to gather together in itself all that surrounds it. But it also lies in human nature to turn into a state of error and confusion in oneself, the general law which leads the lower realms in outer existence toward the greatest heights. This is bound up with what we call human freedom. Human beings could never become free if they were not capable of misusing in a one-sided way certain forces within them, forces that can, on the one hand, lead to the greatest heights of existence, but on the other hand can also pervert existence and perhaps even make a caricature of it. The simple comparison will make this clear. Let us go back to the plant. It does not generally occur to us to speak of egoism in connection with the plant. It was solely for the purpose of highlighting the law of egoism in the whole world that we said that what comes to expression in plants could be called egoism. Where plants as such are concerned, we never speak of egoism. If we consider the plant from a spiritual and not a physical point of view, we can see that the plant is, in a sense, immune to egoism. On the one hand, its life conditions require it to make itself as beautiful as it can, without asking who will benefit from its beauty. But when the plant, gathering together its whole existence, approaches the highest manifestation of its own being, the moment has arrived for giving this up. The plant world has a peculiar characteristic which Goethe expresses beautifully in his prose sayings, quote, The law of vegetable growth reaches its highest manifestation in the blossom, and the very queen of blossoms is the rose. The fruit can never be beautiful, for now the vegetable has withdrawn and become merely a law, close quote. Goethe realized that it is at flowering time that the plant expresses its own law most clearly. But at the very moment of blossoming, it must be prepared to yield up its beauty to the process of fructification, for it is now called upon to sacrifice its very self for its successor, the seed-bearing fruit. There is really something magnanimous in the fact that the plant, at the moment when it is, as it were, coming to full self-expression, has to sacrifice itself. So on this lower level, we see how in nature egoism progresses to a certain stage where it then destroys itself in the giving of itself so that something new may emerge. The most highly developed part of the plant, what we could call the individuality, the plant's self, which achieves its pinnacle of beauty in the flower, begins to fade directly the new plant seed is produced. Now let us ask whether anything similar occurs in the human realm. Indeed, if we consider nature and spiritual life in terms of the spirit, we shall find that something quite similar does occur in man. Human beings are not intended only to reproduce their kind, which would mean living solely as a species, but are called upon to live as individual transcending the species. We shall come to know the true form of human egoism only if we look at the human being in the light of previous lectures. 
In spiritual science, we do not regard human beings as consisting only of a physical body, which they have in common with the mineral kingdom, but we also speak of higher members of their being. First, there is the etheric body, which they have in common with all living things, and then in common with the whole animal kingdom, there is the bearer of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, the astral or consciousness body. And we say that within these three members lives the actual core of their being, the I, capital. This I, or ego, is what we have also to regard as the bearer of egoism, in both a justified and an unjustified sense. Now, all human development consists entirely of the work accomplished by the ego in transforming the other three members of its being. At an imperfect level of existence, the ego is still the slave of these other three members. At first, human beings follow all the urges, desires and passions that come from their astral bodies. But the further they develop, the more they purify their astral body, changing that to which they were enslaved into something which is ruled by their higher nature, by their ego. And their ego becomes more and more the ruler and purifier of the other members of their being. As you will have heard in previous lectures, human beings are now in the midst of this development and are moving toward a future in which the ego will have increasingly become the master of all three members of their lower being. For insofar as they transform their astral body, they create what we call spirit self or, in the terminology of Oriental philosophy, manas. As we are today, we have transformed part of our astral body into manas. In the future, it will be possible for us to transform the etheric body and to create what we call life spirit or buddhi. And when human beings become master over the processes of their physical body, the transformed part of it will be what we call atman, or spirit man. These higher members, which human beings will in the course of future times have consciously made their own, have been in preparation for a very long time. The ego has, in a certain way, unconsciously or consciously, worked on the three members of human nature. In the far distant past, we find that the ego transformed a part of the astral body, which we also call the sentient body into the sentient soul, a part of the etheric body into the rational or perceptive soul, and a part of the physical body into the consciousness soul. These three members of our being form our inner nature. The sentient soul, which is rooted in the sentient body, the rational or perceptive soul, which is rooted in the etheric body, and the consciousness soul, which is rooted in the physical body. Today we shall be especially concerned with the relationship of the sentient body to the sentient soul. If we observe children from the time of their birth and notice how their faculties gradually emerge, as though from the hidden depths of their bodily nature, we can say, here the child's sentient soul is working its way to the surface and becoming visible. Now the sentient body has been built into human beings out of the whole surrounding environment. And we shall understand this if we recall these words of Goethe's, quote, The eye is formed by the light, for the light. Close quote. 
If we think of any sense organ through which human beings become conscious of the outer physical world, we must set against Schopenhauer's one-sided statement that we could not see the light if we did not have eyes, the equally valid statement that if there were no light, there could not be eyes. Through endless ages, as Goethe says, the all-pervading light worked on the human organism so as to fashion out of indefinite beginnings the sense organ that is now able to see light. Eyes were made by the light, by means of light, for the light. It is to our surroundings we have to look to see the forces that have developed in us, the faculties by means of which we become conscious of it. In fact, the entire sentient body, the whole fabric through which we enter into a relationship with our surrounding world, has been created by its living forces. We ourselves have no share in its achievement. Our astral body is a product, a flower, of our surrounding world. Within the sentient body, the sentient soul appears, formed and molded by the ego, out of this sentient body, and, as it were, draws from it the substance for the sentient soul. Now the ego can work in a twofold way. Firstly, it can develop in the sentient soul those faculties which are in keeping with the faculties and characteristics of the sentient body and resound in harmony with it. To make this clear, we can take an example from the field of education. Education is particularly able to supply us with the finest and most practical bases for exemplifying spiritual science. The sentient body is built up from out of the child's environment. Everyone who is active in a teaching capacity around the child from the beginning is actually working on its sentient body. They can supply the sentient body with those social qualities that are in harmony with its characteristics as directed by the ego. But the child can also be exposed to things that are opposed to the characteristics of the sentient body. If children are brought up so that they have the liveliest interest in everything that meets their eyes, and they are able to enjoy color and form, and also really enjoy musical sound, if they can gradually bring about harmony between what comes from outside and the joy and delight that well up in the sentient soul as interest and loving involvement, then the child's response will be an actual mirror image of existence, and there can be genuine harmony between what lives in the child's soul and what lives in outer existence. Then we can say that the person does not live only within himself, capable only of fashioning a sentient soul out of his sentient body, but that he has become capable of going out of himself again. He is not only able to see and hear what nature equips him to see and hear, but he can pour himself out into the surrounding world and live in everything his sentient body conveys to him. Then we have not only harmony between sentient body and sentient soul, but harmony between the surrounding world and the experiences of the sentient soul. Then the sentient soul can pour into the world, and the human being is truly a kind of reflection of the universe, a kind of microcosm, a small world, 
and as Goethe said, he feels joyfully at home in the beautiful great wide world. We can take another example. If a child were to grow up on a desert island, far from any human society, some of its faculties would not develop. It would not acquire speech or the ability to think, or any of those noble capacities which can light up in the human soul only by living together with other human beings. For these are capacities which develop in a person's inner being, in the soul. Now human beings can either develop in such a way that they go out of themselves with their endowments and create harmony between themselves and their environment, or they can let their gifts harden and dry up. This happens if, on taking in the impressions from the outer world, they awaken no echo within themselves to either colors or sounds to send back to the outer world on the wings of joy and interest. People become inwardly hardened when what they acquire from associating with other people is not put to use again for sharing with others. If they cut themselves off and keep their impressions to themselves, then disharmony arises between them and their surroundings. A rift opens up between their sentient soul and sentient body. If, after enjoying the fruits of human progress, they fail to place at the service of humankind benefits they can only acquire in a social milieu, a rift arises between them and their surroundings, whether it be the outer world, to which they can no longer respond, or their human environment, to which they owe their best interests. The result is that they dry up within themselves for they will only be helped and enlivened by what comes to them from outside if this is not torn away from its roots. If people do not want their soul life to stream out into their environment, it really is as though they are being torn away from their living roots. And if they allow this separation to get increasingly entrenched, it will lead to the death of soul life. We are now describing the worst side of egoism, which arises when the ego works in such a way that it erects a gulf between itself and the environment. When egoism takes this form, so that man is not the flower of the whole outer world, not being continuously nourished and enlivened by it, it leads to his own extinction. This is the check generally imposed on egoism, and this makes clear the true nature of egoism. For whereas, on the one hand, man, by absorbing the forces of the universe, enables the universe to attain to a flowering in itself, yet on the other hand, he has to carry out consciously what the plant does unconsciously. At the very moment when the plant is in course of coming to the peak of its development, the egoistic principle behind a plant leads over to a new plant. But man, as a self-aware being, as an ego-bearer, is required to establish this harmony within himself. At a certain stage, he has to be prepared to surrender what he has received from outside and give birth within his own ego to a higher ego. And this higher ego will not become hardened, but will enter into a harmonious relationship with the entire world. 
The knowledge that egoism, when developed one-sidedly, destroys itself, can also be learned from observation of life. We need only look at people who are unable to take any active interest in the great and beautiful ordering of nature out of which the human organism itself is formed. How painful it is for anyone who understands these things to see how some people pass indifferently through the world to which they owe their eyes and ears and cut themselves off from the world in which their existence is rooted, wanting only to be left alone, to brood. And we see how this perverted way in which they live brings its own punishment. People who give no loving attention to the things to which they owe their very existence are thoroughly bored with the world, pursuing one desire after another, not realizing that they are seeking satisfaction in vague phantoms, whereas they should be pouring themselves out into the world from which their own existence has come. Anyone who goes through life saying, I am fed up with people, I have no further use for them, each and every one of them is a nuisance, I am much too good for this world, should consider for once that they are denying the origins of their existence. If they had grown up on a desert island, far from human society, which they think of as not good enough for them, they would have remained stupid and would never have acquired the faculties they now have. All that these people find so grand and praiseworthy about themselves would not be there but for the people they have no use for. They should realize that they have separated themselves from their environment by their own willful choice, and that in fact they owe to their environment the very faculties with which they are now repudiating it. If people pursue this course, then not only does any interest in nature or humankind die out, but their own life forces wither away and they condemn themselves to a desolate, dissatisfied existence. All those individuals who indulge in world weariness because they find nothing anywhere to interest them should ask themselves for once, what causes my egoism? This actually points to a cosmic law, the self-correction in all existence. Wherever egoism takes a perverted form, it has a desolating effect on life. For if people go through life taking no interest in either their fellow men or the rest of the world, then they not only leave unexercised the forces they could be using, but they also destroy themselves. This is the good thing about egoism. If it is taken too far, the person is crushed by it. If we now take the important law we have learned from studying the nature of egoism and apply it to the various faculties of the human soul, we can ask, for example, how does egoism affect the consciousness soul through which human beings acquire knowledge of the world around them? In other words, when can a piece of knowledge be really fruitful? It will be truly effective only if it brings a person into harmony with the rest of the world, which means that the only concepts and ideas that can enliven the human soul are those that are drawn from the outer world, from a living understanding of the world, and then only if we relate to the world in harmony. This is why all knowledge selflessly pursued 
where we seek step by step to reach the great truths of existence, are so health-promoting for the soul, which then passes this on to the physical body. On the other hand, anything that draws us out of a living connection with the world, as inner brooding does, or anything that brings us into discord with the world, will have a hardening effect. Here is another opportunity to refer to the widely existing misunderstanding of the phrase, Know Thyself which has a meaning valid for all epochs. Only when human beings realize that they belong to the whole world, that their own self is not only within their own skin, but is spread out over all the world, over sun, stars, and all the creatures of the earth, and that what is within their skin is only one expression of it, only when they are conscious of this interconnectedness with the entire world can they apply the words Know thyself. For self-knowledge is then world-knowledge. People who fail to realize this are just as clever as a finger which imagines it could achieve an individual existence apart from the rest of the organism. Cut it off, and in three weeks it will definitely no longer be a finger. A finger has no illusions about this. It is only human beings who suppose they could exist without being connected to the world. World knowledge is self-knowledge, and self-knowledge is world knowledge. And any sort of inner brooding is merely a sign that we cannot get away from ourselves. Therefore, it is utter nonsense when in certain theosophical circles people are saying today, the solution of the riddle of existence will not be found in the world outside or in phenomena permeated by spirit, but in our own self. Quote, look for God in your own heart, close quote, is a much-heard doctrine today. Quote, you do not need to endeavor to seek for revelations of the cosmic spirit out in the universe. You have only to look within you. You will find it all there, close quote. This kind of instruction does students a very bad service, for it makes them arrogant and egoistic with regard to knowledge. The result is that certain theosophical trends, instead of training people to be selfless, freeing them from themselves and bringing them into touch with the great riddles of existence have a hardening effect on them by maintaining that they can find all truth and wisdom in themselves. One can appeal to people's pride and vanity by telling them, you need learn nothing from the world, you will find it all in yourselves. We shall appeal to truth only by showing that it is through being in harmony with the great world that we can grow in ourselves and therefore grow in stature in the world. This applies also to what we can call human feeling, the whole content of the perceptive or rational soul, which gains in strength when human beings know how to establish harmony between themselves and the outer world. Strength and energy are not acquired by brooding all day over such questions as, what shall I think now? What shall I do now? What is this pain I feel coming on again? But by opening our hearts to everything great and beautiful in our whole environment, and by showing interest and understanding for everything that warms the heart of others, as well as for their wants and deprivations. By doing this we create life forces in our own world of feeling, and we overcome narrow-minded egoism, and enhance and enrich our ego 
by bringing it into harmony with our environment through a true form of egoism. This comes out especially clearly when we consider the human will, the actual consciousness soul. People who exert their will only for themselves and their own advantage will always feel inwardly dissatisfied. Only when they can see their resolves reflected in the outer world and their will impulses realized in action can they say that they have brought their willing into harmony with outer events. It is indeed so that our own strength and power do not come from what we will for ourselves, but by what we will for our environment and for other people. Then our will is realized and its reflection shines back into us. Just as eyes are created by light, so is our strength of soul brought about by the world of our deeds. Thus we see how human beings as self-aware beings are able through a right comprehension of their I, their ego, to establish harmony with the world outside until they grow out of themselves and accomplish what we can call the birth of a higher self. In this way they bring forth something in themselves even as a plant on a lower level brings forth out of itself a new being at the moment when it is in danger of becoming stuck in its own existence. This is how we must understand egoism. The very fact of the ego being fructified by the surrounding world and bringing forth on the heights of existence a new ego makes it mature enough to flow out into actions which would otherwise only be expressed in worthless demands and useless moral postulates. For only through world knowledge can the will be fired to act on the world in return. Whatever points may be set out in the programs of societies, however many societies may have, quote, universal human love, close quote, at the head of their programs, they will never meet moral requirements. All all the ordinary preaching of human love is as though a stove were standing in a cold room and someone were to say to it, Dear stove, your moral duty as a stove is to warm the room. You could go on saying this, not for hours but for days, yet the stove would not feel at all inclined to warm the room. Similarly, human beings will not feel the slightest bit moved to practice human love, even if you were to preach to them for centuries that human beings ought to love one another. But bring human egos into connection with all that is in the world, Give them the chance to be interested in the progress of plant growth and in all the beauty of nature, and you will see that this interest will be the foundation for a higher level of participation in human society. By getting to know human beings and human nature, we learn to have understanding for other people's faults and good qualities. Wisdom of this kind, born from approaching the world with living insight, passes over into the blood, into action, into the will. And what we call human love is also born out of such wisdom. Just as babbling to the stove is useless, when what we need to do is simply to bring wood and light a fire, so should we bring to human beings the fuel that will enkindle, warm and illuminate their souls. And the fuel required is a living knowledge of the world, 
which will lead to an understanding of human nature and an harmonious consonance between the human ego and the outer world. What will also arise out of this will be human love, a love that can flow from heart to heart and draw human beings together, teaching them that actions performed only for themselves, excuse me, only for ourselves, have a deadly, desolating effect upon us, while actions that have a helpful influence on the lives of others are reflected back, enhancing our own strength. Through a right understanding of egoism, our ego is enriched and enabled to develop if we realize our own self as much as we can in the service of another, striving to cultivate not only personal feeling but fellow feeling. This is how the nature of egoism is seen by spiritual science. The subject we have touched on today has deeply interested all thinkers who have pondered seriously on human existence. The nature of egoism was bound to concern outstanding figures of the 18th century, a time when human beings as individuals had broken free from certain ties with their social environment. One of these outstanding personalities was Goethe, and he has given us as a living example a prose work of his thoughts on the nature of egoism, his titled Wilhelm Meister's Years of Apprenticeship and its sequel titled Wilhelm Meister's Years of Travel. Just as Faust occupied Goethe throughout his life, so did Wilhelm Meister. As early as the 1760s, Goethe felt that he had the task of depicting in the particular life of Wilhelm Meister a kind of mirror image of his own life. And it was in his old age, when he was nearing his death, that he completed the years of travel. It would lead us too far to go into the details of Wilhelm Meister, but perhaps I may outline the problem of egoism as we meet it here in Goethe. A thoroughgoing, ingenious egoist, one ought to say, is portrayed here. Wilhelm Meister was born into the business profession, but he is enough of an egoist to abandon this calling despite the claims of duty. What then does he really want to do? We are shown that he wants to develop himself to the highest degree and with the utmost freedom. He has a vague notion of attaining to a kind of peak of perfection. Thus Goethe takes Wilhelm Meister through all kinds of life experiences so as to show how life works at this individuality in order to raise it to a higher level. Goethe is well aware, of course, that Wilhelm Meister is led around through all sorts of situations, yet does not arrive at a definite goal. Therefore, at one point he calls him a poor wretch. But at the same time, he says he knows that although people have to work their way through folly and error, yet they are led by certain forces, ones that happen to be in the world, to a certain goal, or at least along a certain path. It was Goethe's lifelong opinion that human life is never completely at the mercy of chance, but is subject, like all things, to laws, indeed spiritual laws. Therefore, Goethe says that the whole human race can be regarded as a great individual striving upward and making itself the master of chance. Goethe's intention, accordingly, is to show us that Wilhelm Meister is all the time intent on heightening, enriching, and perfecting his ego. 
At the same time, he leads Wilhelm Meister into a way of life which is, strictly speaking, removed from reality. The whole character of the 18th century can help us to understand why Wilhelm Meister is removed from real life and introduced to the world of the theater. A career in the world of real events is not for him, and he is to mingle with people who work with a picture and illusion of life. Art itself is, in a certain respect, an image of life. It is not part of direct reality, but raises itself above reality. Goethe was well aware that artists who work on their art alone are in danger of losing the firm ground of reality from under their feet. It is well said that the muse may accompany but not lead a person through life. To begin with, Wilhelm Meister gives himself over entirely to the forces belonging to art, and especially the art of the theater, with its beautiful illusions. If we follow the course of his life, we find that he is habitually torn to and fro between dissatisfaction and joy. And these swings of feeling are evident during his time in the theater. At last he experiences a kind of model performance of Hamlet, and this gives him a certain satisfaction within those particular elements into which he has been driven. This enhances his ego. Two episodes, however, which have been inscribed into titled The Years of Apprenticeship, show us clearly that what Goethe had at the back of his mind was the nature of egoism. The first episode concerns little Mignon, whom Wilhelm Meister finds in somewhat dubious company, and who accompanies him for a while as a kind of magical figure. Some very remarkable observations about Mignon were made to Chancellor von Müller by Goethe in his old age. He referred to Madame von Stahl's comment that all the part about Mignon was an episode which did not really belong to the work. Goethe agreed that anyone interested only in superficial continuity of the story might say that the Mignon episode could be left out. But it would be quite wrong to suppose, Goethe continued, that the part about Mignon was only an episode. In fact, the whole of Wilhelm Meister had been written on account of this remarkable character. But Goethe was apt to express himself somewhat radically in conversation, and to say certain things that are not to be taken too literally. If we go more deeply into the matter, however, we can see why he said this to Chancellor von Müller. In the figure of Mignon, this is not a personal name with a male or female classification, but means simply darling, Goethe depicts a human being who lives just long enough for the germ of anything that can properly be called ego egoism to appear in her. The whole psychology of Mignon is most remarkable. Everything that comes under the heading of opening up to the outer world happens in Mignon in a really naive way. She never gives any sign of acting from selfish motives. Things that other people do out of self-interest, she does as a matter of course from out of her own nature. One could say that she would not be human if she were not, so, if she were not to behave like this. She is still so naive, so purely human, that egoism has not yet wakened in her. Directly Wilhelm Meister embarks on an episode in his life which breaks the bond which united him with Mignon. She fades away and dies. 
just as a plant does when it has reached a certain stage of its existence. In her being she is not yet fully human, has not begun to have an ego, but represents a childlike naivete, an undifferentiated humanity in relation to her whole environment. And she dies like a plant does, and one could indeed apply to her the lines, not asking why or wherefore blooms the rose, cares not for herself or whether men behold her. One really could say that two apparently similar actions are different when they are performed by different persons. What other people do out of egoism, she does naturally. And the moment there could be a question of an egoistic impulse stirring in her soul, she dies. That is the enchantment of her character, that we have before us a human being without egohood and who slips through our fingers at the moment when egohood could arise. And as it was the quality of egoism that especially interested Goethe in Wilhelm Meister, we find it understandable that he should have said at the time, what you should be looking for in Wilhelm Meister, you will actually find in his counterpart, Mignon. The impulse that is seen in the little creature and dies with her at the moment it is about to appear is the very same impulse that makes it so difficult for Wilhelm Meister to develop his ego, and on account of which he has to go through the whole business of being educated in the school of life. We then find woven into the story of Wilhelm Meister the apparently unconnected part called quote, Confessions of a Beautiful Soul, close quote, which are known to be drawn almost literally from a diary kept by Goethe's friend Suzanne von Plettenberg and which flowed from her heart, and they in fact show the nature of egoism at its highest point. This beautiful soul, Suzanne von Klettenberg, rose indeed to high levels, but these confessions bring out the danger of egoism, the reverse side of the enrichment of the ego. When a person rises to such heights, for it is her own development that Suzanne von Klettenberg describes. She relates that at first she delights in the world around her, just as others do, but that one day something awakens in her soul and tells her, living within you is something that will bring you nearer to the God within you. To begin with, this inner experience alienates her from the world. She no longer has any interest in it. All her joy and bliss and a particular measure of inner joy come from her feeling of communion with what she calls her inner God, in quotes. She withdraws entirely into her inner life. Yet this beautiful soul cannot escape from the feeling that this is nothing but an ingenious form of egoism. The dawning of this type of egoism, where it estranges people from the outer world, shutting them off from their environment and making them cold and heartless toward it, may at first bring them some satisfaction and a certain happiness. But it brings no lasting joy. By alienating them from the world around them, it has a desolating effect on their souls. But this beautiful soul is also an energetic, striving soul, and she proceeds from stage to stage. She is not able to sever herself entirely from the impressions that come from the outer world and can lead to harmony with it. So she is forever seeking the mysteries that underlie the symbols of the various religions hoping to see reflected there the divinity that has arisen in her. 
But whatever she can experience in these outer forms is not enough for her. She is resolved to go further. And in consequence, she is led to a remarkable stage of her life. One day, she says to herself, everything human on our earth was not too mean for God to descend and incarnate himself in as a human being. And at that moment, she feels that the outer world is not debased, in that it is not the spiritual realm itself, but only an expression of the spiritual realm, or because it represents something that has fallen away from the spiritual realm. For now she feels that the outer world really is permeated by spirit, and that human beings have no right to detach themselves from the environment. Then another experience comes to her which tells her what is said to have taken place in Palestine at the beginning of our era is true. She participates in this and experiences in herself the whole life of Christ Jesus right up to the crucifixion and the death. She experiences the divine presence in humanity in such a way that as she clearly describes Everything that appears to the physical senses as external image recedes and becomes a purely spiritual experience. The invisible becomes visible and the inaudible audible. She feels herself united now, not with an abstract divinity, but with a divine presence that itself belongs to the earth. But she has again withdrawn in a certain sense and cannot find her way back into ordinary life. Then something comes to her which makes her capable of seeing in every natural object, in every single thing and circumstance of life, the imprint of the spiritual. And she regards this as a kind of highest stage. And it is characteristic of Goethe that it was for him a kind of confession to be able to communicate the, quote, confessions of a beautiful soul, close quote. What was it that Goethe wished to indicate here as being an important point in Wilhelm Meister's education? Wilhelm Meister was meant to read this manuscript and be led by it to a higher stage. He was to be shown that human beings cannot do enough to develop in themselves a living, vibrant life of soul, and they cannot go far and high enough in their contact with the spiritual world, but also that to shut themselves off from the outer world cannot lead to a satisfying existence. They can understand the great world around them only when their own enriched being stretches out into the environment. What Goethe wants to show is that to start with people can that to start with people can just look at the world as it is. Let me read that again. What Goethe wants to show is that to start with people can just look at the world as it is. They will then see it as ordinary and trivial and they will remain tied to the commonplace. They may then be inclined to say, this is the ordinary everyday world. The spiritual element can be found only by looking within oneself. And we can indeed find it there on a very high level. But we are then all the more in duty bound for our own sake to return to the outer world. And now we find that the commonplace has a spiritual dimension. The same world is there for both the trivially minded people and those who have found the spirit within themselves. The former accept the world as the ordinary world of monism, 
the latter having first enriched their spiritual faculties and developed the appropriate organs in themselves, are aware of the spiritual behind everything perceived by the senses. So for Goethe this inner development is a roundabout way of acquiring knowledge of the world. This is the most important thing we can discover in the sort of soul Goethe is describing in Wilhelm Meister. He is helped to progress best by the influences that work on him from hidden sides of life. He is helped less by outer circumstances, for what helps him most is being livingly involved in the experiences and the path of development of a soul like that. Toward the end of Wilhelm Meister's years of apprenticeship, we are shown that behind Wilhelm Meister is something like an occult society which guides him while remaining invisible to him. Some critics have complained that this kind of thing belongs to the 18th century and can have no interest for people today. For Goethe, however, something quite different was involved. He wished to show that Wilhelm Meister's ego had to find its way through the various labyrinths of life and that a certain spiritual guidance of humanity does exist. The, quote, society of the tower, close quote, by which Wilhelm Meister is guided, was meant to be only the outer trappings of spiritual powers and forces which lead human beings, even though the course of their lives may pass through folly and confusion, and by such invisible forces Wilhelm Meister was guided. In our time such things are dismissed with a condescending smile. But in our time also Philistines have acquired the sole right to pass judgment on personalities such as Goethe. Anyone who knows the world will concede that no one can find more in a person than there is in them. And anyone could say that with regard to Goethe, excuse me, anyone could say that with regard to Goethe. But that is just what a Philistine does not say for he believes he has found in Goethe everything there is to find, and woe betide anyone who says something different. For he possesses the entire range of wisdom and can survey it from his vantage point. Naturally that makes Goethe the Philistine, but that is not Goethe's fault. So Wilhelm Meister's life continues in the second part, the the years of travel. Both Philistines and non-Philistines have been moved to protest at the lack of composition and the inartistic nature of this sequel. Yes, indeed, Goethe did serve up something rather dreadful there. In his prime, out of his own life experiences, he wanted to show how a person can go through the labyrinths of life. In a certain sense, he wanted to present a mirror image of himself. And he also tells us how he put it together. First of all, he took a lot of trouble over the first part of the years of travel. We don't want to excuse any of it, but printing began before the rest was finished, and the printer set the type faster than Goethe could write. So Goethe had to continue by sketching the plot. In earlier years he had written various fairy tales and novelettes, for example, the story of the Holy Family, the story of the Nut-Brown Maiden, the tale of the new Melusine, and others. All these are included in the years of travel, although they were originally not intended for it. Goethe inserted these stories in various places and quickly made transitions to work them in. Obviously, it was nothing like an orderly composition. 
but still the thing did not proceed fast enough. Goethe had various other writings from earlier years, and these he gave to his secretary, Eckermann, saying, Insert any of this that you can. So Eckermann sorted them out, and the separate parts were often very loosely connected. There is no doubt about it being a very formless work, and anyone is at liberty to judge it this way from an artistic point of view. But in actual fact, not a line of it was written by Eckermann. It is all Goethe's work and every bit of it expressed experiences living in his own soul, with the figure of Wilhelm Meister constantly before him. Thus he was able to introduce events from his own life that had set their mark on his soul, and since Wilhelm Meister is a reflected image of himself, the various episodes wind their way through the book, just as Goethe saw them winding their way through his own life, and the impression they make is by no means irrelevant. It has been said that the narrative lacks tension and is repeatedly interrupted by wise explanations. Some people utterly condemn it without even having read it. From their own point of view they are right, of course. There is another point of view. We can learn an immense amount from these years of travel if we muster the interest and the goodwill to lift ourselves up by means of the experiences from which Goethe himself learned. And that is really something. Must everything have a good composition if it is something that can serve us in some other way? Is a lack of formal design so fatal? For those who know everything and have nothing more to learn, perhaps what is fatal is that there is so much wisdom in Wilhelm Meister. It is precisely in this second part that we can find described in a wonderful way how the ego can rise to ever greater heights and become the pinnacle of existence. We are shown in a particularly beautiful way how Wilhelm Meister takes his son to a most remarkable educational establishment. This, too, has been condemned by the Philistines. It never occurred to them that Goethe had no intention of presenting this establishment as though it existed somewhere or other in the real world, but that he wanted to present symbolically in his pedagogical province his view of education. People who visit this establishment are immediately struck by the fact that the life of the soul is given expression in certain gestures. In one gesture the hands are folded on the breast and the eyes turned upward. In another the hands are clasped behind the back while the pupils stand side by side. Then there is a particularly special one where the soul element comes to expression through the gesture of bowing toward the earth. If people ask what all this means, they are told that the boys are there, excuse me, that the boys are to awaken in their souls, their ego, what are called the three kinds of veneration, whereby human beings can develop their souls to ever higher levels. These are presented as the most important of all educational principles. First, human beings should learn to look up in veneration to what is above them. Then they should learn to venerate what is below them, so that they may realize how they themselves have sprung from it. And then they should learn to venerate the people beside them and what makes us equal, for only then can they have proper reverence for their own ego. People will acquire a proper harmony with their environment if they have the right veneration for what is above them, for what is below them, and for what is beside them. 
This will also ensure that their ego is developed in the right way, and egoism cannot go astray. We are then shown how the most important religions should influence the human soul. The folk or ethnic religions should take the form of gods and spirits standing above the human being. The philosophical religions, as they could be called, are to inculcate veneration for our equals. And the attitude that leads us down to the realm of existence that can easily be despised, that enables us to look with proper veneration at death, sorrow, and the hindrances in the world, this attitude leads us to the right understanding of the Christian religion. For it is emphasized that the Christian religion shows us God descending into earthly sheaths, taking upon himself the whole misery of life and experiencing the human lot. Veneration for what is below should especially promote a right understanding of the Christian religion. We are thus shown in detail how human beings develop. Goethe then describes how Wilhelm Meister is led into a kind of temple where deeply significant pictures of the three religions are brought before the souls of the pupils from their earliest youth and how everything in this utopian school is intended to produce an harmonious whole. However, this school expresses more in thought form the way people should be brought up from their earliest years, so that, on the one hand, they establish harmony with their environment, and on the other hand have the opportunity to develop their ego to higher and higher levels. This is presented in detail. For example, a boy's age is not indicated by the clothes he wears. They are offered a varied range of garments and have to choose those they prefer. In this way, the children are encouraged to express their individual characteristics. In fact, because a kind of group spirit always exists, resulting in weaker boys imitating stronger ones by choosing the same outfit to the detriment of their own individuality, the rule is that after a while these garments are dropped and gradually replaced by others. In short, Goethe wanted to show how the growing boy should be educated with regard to everything that leads him, on the one hand, right into his gestures, to harmony with his surroundings, and on the other hand, right down to his clothing, promotes his inner freedom as an individual. People say that this is a fantasy and that nothing like it has ever existed. But Goethe meant to imply only that the plan could be realized in some place, at some time, and that these ideas ought to enter the realm of space and time and find an embodiment wherever they can. Those who think this is impossible could be advised to read Fichte. He set a high ideal before his students, but he knew what he was doing, and to those who called themselves realists, while knowing little about reality, he said, We know as well as you do, and perhaps better, that ideals cannot be realized immediately in ordinary life. But ideals must be there in order to act as regulators in life and to be brought to life. This has to be emphasized time and again. And as for those who do not want to have any ideals, Fichte said that this shows that providence left them out of the reckoning. But may a benevolent God, he added, grant them rain and sunshine at the right times, a good digestion, and possibly good thoughts. This obvious answer could also be applied to those who assert that the educational establishment in Goethe's Wilhelm Meister could never be realized. 
it could be realized both in its overall principles and its minutest details if there were people ready to introduce such principles into life even in our everyday circumstances. And a second episode in the years of travel presents a personality, Makari, who exemplifies to the highest degree a union of the individual ego with the I of the world. Goethe shows us here a personality who has inwardly awakened and developed the spirit within herself to such an extent that she lives in the spirit that pervades the world. The liberation of her inner powers gives her the knowledge that an expert astronomer acquires from calculating the course of the stars. The deepest spiritual scientific research is indicated by Goethe when he describes how through spiritual science the soul can enter into the life of the universe and how self-knowledge can become world-knowledge and world-knowledge self-knowledge. Thus in a series of pictures grouped as it were around his Wilhelm Meister we are shown how the human self must pursue its development. Rightly understood, Wilhelm Meister is, from beginning to end, an example of how human development is related to egoism. When we find in a poet an exposition of a problem so important for spiritual science, this is, for us, further proof of what we have already seen in our studies of Faust, the tale of the green snake and the beautiful lily, and Pandora, namely that in Goethe we have a genius who is in full agreement with what we call spiritual science in the true sense. Goethe himself speaks in this sense when he says, we can grasp the nature of egoism if we take man's whole being into account and realize that the cosmos had to bring human beings to the point spiritually where they fell into the temptations of Lucifer. If thus, if this possibility had not been open to them, they could not have become the flower of all that surrounds them outside. But if they succumb to the temptation of egoism, they incur a sentence of death on themselves. The wisdom of the cosmos had ensured that everything good in the world can turn into its opposite in order to give human beings freedom. But directly they misuse their freedom and go too far a measure of self-correction occurs. Here again is a chapter that conveys the message that everything bad and sinful in human nature, when considered from a higher standpoint, can be transmuted into good, into a pledge of mankind's eternal, ever-ascending progress. And so, if we are not afraid to descend into the depths of pain and evil, all the teachings of spiritual science are of a nature that can lead us to the greatest heights of the spirit and to all that is human, and will confirm the beautiful words with which we will close today's reflections, words that sound to us down the ages from the wisdom and poetry of ancient Greece. Quote, Man is the shadow of a dream, but when the sun ray, heaven sent, shines in upon him, then his day is bright and all his life transfused with sheer delight. The end of Lecture 7